We have followed the life of John the Baptist from his uh, conception and the time in his mother's womb. There was the interaction between Elizabeth and Mary where the baby within Elizabeth, who is John the Baptist, left for joy for being in in the presence of Jesus. All the way through to John now as an adult in prison for having spoken against the powers that be. Wondering if this Jesus guy is all that he thought that Jesus was going to be. We've traced John's story sort of from beginning to end. He would be executed soon after that encounter. Um, And John's story is one that is marked by a type of joy. We see that joy in the beginning when he recognizes the presence of Jesus somehow and leaps for joy. But then there is even this sense of joy in the midst of hardship. Go and tell John, Jesus says, that all of your hopes, all of the things that scripture has foretold about the Messiah, the the deaf will hear, the lame will walk, the dead will rise again, and all of these things, those are happening. Don't lose heart. Even in the midst of this difficult time, you can still hang on to that joy. John's story is one, I'm convinced, of of a, a joy that goes beyond the circumstances of his life. We turn now to our gospel. Let me try that again. We just heard the gospel reading. We turn now to our sermon text for the day, which comes from James chapter 5, Verses 7 through 11. James 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. And how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers and sisters. Or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters... As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for this word and for all of the other words that we have heard from Scripture today that remind us that you are good in the midst of hardship, that you are good even when there is suffering. Help us, Lord, to live in this state of anticipation that we would know that your coming is near even as we wait for your arrival. Bless this time of reflection and this uh, time of sharing in your word. May it be fruitful in all of our lives. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. 
This is week three of the season of Advent. The wheels are turning as people ask me, how is the season going for you as a pastor? I say, well, everything's in motion. We're just, we're just rolling now. Uh, it's only 10 days till Christmas. There's not a whole lot left to plan. It's just a matter of doing it now. It's all good. Uh, in this season of Advent, we are awaiting something. And what we're awaiting is not just the celebration of Jesus' birth. Advent has always historically been a season of waiting for the celebration of Jesus' birth, but also the celebration of Jesus' return, anticipating his return, the, the second coming, sometimes we call this. And as, I, um, as I've talked about it in the past, and you may have heard this term before, there's a, a word that describes this idea of Jesus' second coming, and that word is eschatology. Can you say that word? Eschatology. It's a good word to impress your friends with, right? But it, it means essentially just uh, the, the end of things. It's the study of what will happen at the end of time. And from a Christian perspective, our main texts for studying eschatology, of course, have to do with the book of Revelation. We turn to that book a lot. But we also turn to a couple of chapters in the Gospels, uh, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, and there's one in Mark as well, I think 12 or 13, where Jesus talks a lot about his view of what the end of things will be like and when the Son of Man returns. He uses that kind of language a lot. Today's passage from James 5 is another one of those passages that has to do with what will happen at the end. Because he uses the phrase, the Lord's coming, multiple times. And that word... Uh, parousia, the Greek word is parousia there, for the Lord's coming. It means the return, the, 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 uh, the, the second advent, the second coming of the Lord. And what James is driving home in this passage is the nearness of that coming. The Lord's coming is near. And that should bring about a sense of excitement in those that read these words. What James is talking about is not just a closeness in terms of time, as in it's only an hour and a half until the Lord comes. You should be excited. It's only 10 days till Christmas. You should be excited. It's not that kind of nearness that James is talking about necessarily. He's talking about nearness in the sense that it's so close that things are already beginning to happen. Things are already happening. And in this sense, our, our cultural uh, celebrations of Christmas kind of get it right. Because Christmas is 10 days away still, but things are already happening, right? Stores have been decked out in Christmas paraphernalia for months, it seems. Um, concerts and celebrations and candles and all the things that... Uh, things are happening. Trees are up. Presents are getting wrapped. You haven't done all your shopping yet. I know. I haven't either. Things are happening, right? We haven't come to the day yet, but things are already beginning to happen. That's how near Christmas is. And so we get that idea sort of right, although we kind of direct it toward Christmas instead of toward the advent of Jesus. To be near, the Lord's coming is near, means that it's so close at hand that we can already see and experience some of the effects of that arrival. So that's the idea that I'd like to unpack a little bit today. What does the return of Jesus look like in that sense of nearness? 
people are really good at about debating, um, Christians, I should say, are good about debating what the end of time will look like, and there are a bajillion different theories about what the second coming look like. Um, people have split, Christians have split over differences of opinion, over uh, when this will happen and that will happen. None of that matters unless the belief in the Lord's return translates into a different way of living in the here and now. We can argue until we're blue in the face about whether the seventh trumpet or the fifth whatever and the 5,000 and 144,000, none of that matters unless it translates into how we live today. Because that's what all the scripture is about. <laughs> it's about helping us know how to live today. And so James is talking about how to live today. In his today and in our today too. Yes, the Lord's coming is near, but what difference does that make for James and his readers? Well, we need a little context for James and his readers to make sense of this. James is thought to be the brother of Jesus. Uh, that's how scripture casts him. Uh, so we're talking about a person who grew up with this Messiah figure. Can you imagine being the younger brother of the Savior of the world? He never does anything wrong. You know, he's the favorite child and all this stuff. Can you, it's, it's got, it had to have been strange to be his brother growing up. But James becomes a believer. He becomes a Christian and leads in the early church. This James is a, a leader in the church in Jerusalem um, in the uh, decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, Jesus dies and is raised in the, in the early 30s AD, and then James continues to live until he is killed about 30 years later, 35 years later, in the late 60s. This period of time in Jerusalem is really complicated because the Jews are not free people. They are occupied by the Roman Empire, and things are not good economically and politically and all of the other ways they very much being oppressed, especially the poor, are being oppressed by the rich. And you can pick up on this by reading back in James, even just uh, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, where James is criticizing the wealthy. Uh, the rich apparently were uh, the landowners, the people that were hiring people to work in their fields. They were hiring people but not paying them to work. Uh, James very uh, uh, bluntly says, you're not paying the people that are working in your fields. And this is not a good thing. Um, he criticizes the rich who have oppressed the poor. He even says that they have condemned and murdered innocent people. Something really wrong is happening in James's world. So he's writing in response to what is happening in his world. He's also writing in response to how some folks want to respond to this negative situation. One of the major movements in the uh, middle part of that first century was the movement of zealots. And these were Jewish people who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire and kick them out of Jerusalem and out of their land and reestablish their uh, independence, and they wanted to do it through the use of force. They wanted to take up arms and basically go to war against the Roman occupation and reclaim their freedom, the freedom for the people of God. 
that's a pretty common human response to suffering and hardship. When there's, uh, th- th- when there's hardship and oppression, a lot of times people are inspired to, to revolt and rebel against, uh, against whatever the enemy is. Human history is covered with examples of this kind of response, this kind of desire for violent revenge. It's uh, something that the idea of violent revenge is something that informs our movies and our novels, the stories that we like to tell. The, the hero or the villain is often consumed by this desire for revenge and they'll, they'll uh, fight back to reclaim what is rightfully theirs for good or for evil. Um, and it's a, it's a theme in our movies and our novels and in our intercultural uh, experiences because it's a theme in our own lives too, as individuals, when something is wrong in our lives, we have an impulse, for some of us it's stronger than for others, but we have an impulse to do something about it, to fight back, to take control, to reclaim what has been stolen from us. In response to that, James calls for a completely different posture, a completely different way of Responding to suffering and hardship. He says, be patient. That's not, that's not easy, of course. Be patient. Don't respond with violence or revenge. Don't grab for power. Don't take matters into your own hands. Just be patient. Persevere. Endure the suffering. Because the Lord's coming is near. Now, today, in our community, in our culture, we don't face the same kind of persecution, uh, hardly, that the early Christians did. Um, We are not uh, forbidden to practice and to gather. We are not jailed for believing in Jesus. That doesn't happen for us. Um, It is the case for some modern-day Christians around of the world today. Um, this past week, the general director of the Church of God, uh, Jim Lyon, wrote an article online that uh, is called Christmas Hallmarks, and he referenced the real-life struggles that Christians face today in parts of the world like North Korea or India or China. And the culprit is not any one particular people group or any one particular religion. It's, it's religious extremists across the board that are causing problems and have caused problems for people of other faiths for all time. Islamic extremists, Hindu extremists, and so forth. And uh, Jim wrote in this article, The union of religious faith and nationalism, whatever its context, can be very dangerous and breed intolerance. And we see that happening in those parts of the world. When Christians and really any people of faith face persecution at the hands of religious extremists, it is crucial that they persevere. Perseverance is not just a Christian virtue, but it's a, it's a virtue of all religious people to stick with the belief even when you're being um, harmed for it. We may not face that kind of persecution in our lives today, but on our own levels, we have our individual struggles and difficulties that are sometimes based on our religious faith. Sometimes they're just because of the circumstances of life, whatever those might be. 
when we experience hardship or struggles, it is natural for us to want to act out in anger, to seek revenge against those who harm us. And most of the time, we do a good job of restraining ourselves. Most of the time, we don't run off and join the zealots and try to overthrow the Roman Empire. Most of the time. Um, But a lot of the time, I think we do something that's a bit more subtle and very dangerous on its own level. When there is anger or pain in, uh, I'll use me as an example because I know what's inside here better than I know what's inside anybody else, I suppose. When there's anger or pain inside me, oftentimes what happens is that I transfer those feelings to those who are closest to me. And maybe this is something that is common to humanity. I think it probably is. Have you ever noticed how you have the shortest fuse or the worst temper, the most negative reactions when you are with your closest family members? When we go out in public, when we go to the restaurants or to the store or to church, we put on the good face and we say, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> and then when we go home behind closed doors, we talk about it. And our, our worst inclinations, our worst attitudes come out in those relationships where we really are the safest or where we should be the safest. We can be our true selves when we are at home. I've seen it time and time again in people's lives that we transfer these, these feelings of, of anger and, and pain and suffering onto loved ones, even when those loved ones have had nothing to do with causing that pain. So James writes, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Why did he have to write that? <laughs> Don't grumble against one another. We have to be patient. We have to persevere. And now we can't even grumble against each other. The solution to the question of how do we do this, the solution that James presents, no matter what kind of suffering or persecution or hardship that we face, the solution is to emphasize the Lord's coming. We may not be able to make things right in this world. But the good news is that the Lord is coming soon. The judge is standing at the door. God will make all things right. God will bring justice to the world. For that first generation of Christians, for Jesus and Peter and James and John and this James, the the Lord's arrival, the, the second coming of Jesus, appeared in a very dramatic way in the uh, in the capture and destruction of the city of Jerusalem in the year seventy A.D. The corruption and religious perversion of the, of the people in Jerusalem had grown so large that the Roman army surrounded the city, laid siege to it for a few years, and then finally leveled it to the ground. 
This was not the first time that Jerusalem had been conquered by an outside force. It had happened 600-some years before by the Babylonians when they came in and conquered Jerusalem and took the people off into exile. And the interpretation of that event then was the same as it was in the year 70. This is God's judgment on the people. This is God the judge coming and making things right because they had, the people had gone astray and now God is going to make things right in his eyes. That was the way that they interpreted the arrival of the Lord through something that we would see as kind of a negative thing, (laughs) through a period of intense hardship and pain and suffering and loss. So many people were killed by the conquering Roman army. And this is the arrival of the Lord. This is the coming of the Lord. And James says, this is going to happen. This is, this is what the Lord's coming will look like. Uh, the Lord's coming is near. He wasn't just imagining that this would be a period of hardship. It's uh, something that Jesus, his brother, said once upon a time too. Uh, in one of those passages, I think it was Luke 21, where Jesus is talking about what will happen in the future. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Know that the end is near. And then 30 some odd years down the road, that happened. The Lord's coming is a time of judgment and a time of setting things right, where God will radically reshape the way of the world to let us know that he is the one who is in charge. Well, we stand about 1950 years after that destruction of Jerusalem. Next year will be 1950, since the year 70. And that's a long time. And we still, today, talk about the return of Jesus. The Christian tradition still proclaims that the Lord is coming. Even though that happened in the year 70 AD, that has happened, but we're still waiting for something else to take place. We're still waiting for Jesus to return at the end of the age. What should we expect? What will that look like? And so we scour the scriptures. That's what eschatology is about, trying to figure out what that end will look like. And here are three characteristics that James says from this passage in James 5. Three characteristics of the Lord's return. Number one, the Lord's coming is near. We shouldn't worry about when and where and what it will all look like. We shouldn't worry about it really at all. To say that the Lord's coming is near, remember, is to say that we are already beginning to experience the effects of that arrival. Meaning that the kingdom of God is already growing within us and among us, even as we wait. Number two, the Lord is coming with judgment. The judge is standing at the door. The judge is not coming simply to punish, though. Uh, the judges, the role of a judge, even in our society, is not strictly speaking to punish, but to find what the truth is and to bring righteousness and justice into the situation. So to say the Lord is coming with judgment is not to say that the Lord is coming to punish. Those are two 
really separate ideas. The Lord is coming with righteousness. The Lord is coming to make things right. And then number three, the Lord is coming with compassion and mercy. And this balances out that second point, the Lord is coming with, with judgment, uh, because you can't have one without the other. God's ultimate purpose, God's ultimate mission, his character, his motivation, is to be merciful and compassionate. This goes all the way back to the beginning when God passed in front of Moses. Uh, remember, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And Moses said, could I just see you? I'd like to see your face. And God says, you can't handle the truth. And Moses says, well, let me see just a little bit of you. And God says, that was a joke, by the way. Did you catch it? Okay, good. Um, God says, I'll, I'll pass by you and you can see me as I, as I go by. You can see the, the, the backside of me as I go by. And as he does this, this, God proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is God's self-understanding. That God is compassion and mercy incarnate. In the spirit. God is, God is the definition of compassion and mercy. That is the goal that God is working toward. So we're celebrating this season of Christmas. More appropriately, we're celebrating the season of Advent. Christmas has not yet come. We're still waiting. We're still waiting. One of the key messages of Advent is that the Lord is coming soon with judgment and with compassion and mercy. And when that message sinks into us, we are filled with joy. Not simply in that dictionary definition of joy that has to do with happiness and euphoria and delight. That's not the kind of joy we're talking about. We're talking about a deep Happiness, a deep blessing, a contentment that goes beyond that simple description. James writes, blessed are those, in this passage, blessed are those who have persevered, who have shown patience in the midst of suffering. Jesus said something like that too, back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed just means happy, joyous, in the midst of difficult circumstances. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? Because the Lord is coming soon with judgment and with compassion and mercy. And so we sing one of our favorite Christmas carols, which really isn't a Christmas carol. It's an Advent hymn. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. He has already begun to come. <laughs> Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world 
with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Is that possible? Is it true? James seemed to think so. And 20 centuries of Christians have thought so too. When the joy of the Lord's return fills our lives, we will practice patience and perseverance internally, and we will practice nonviolence and love in our interpersonal relationships, even in those relationships that are closest to us. We won't grumble against each other, and we will endure hardship for God's sake without resort violence in God's name. So let me suggest a practical way that we can uh, work on this spiritual fruit of patience that leads to joy. Uh, the words are already on the screen here for you, so you see where this is going. A, a contemplative model of prayer is to focus on your breathing as you pray. Uh, just to be attentive to the breath going into you and going and coming out of you. With every breath, you recognize breath is a gift from God. God is spirit, and spirit and breath and life are all the same term in Hebrew. And so, this is this is a way to recognize that God is present with you, even as you pray. So your mind doesn't have to be full of chatter and words. You can just focus on the breathing as a gift from God. And one way to uh, to help reshape our emotions and our reactions to things. When you find yourself suffering hardship or when you're experiencing something that's difficult or when you're grumbling against a family member, you know, as we do, you can pause in what you're doing and take three deep breaths. They're outlined here for you. On that first deep breath, just say to yourself quietly internally, the Lord's coming is near. You breathe in. And breathe out, the Lord's coming is near. A phrase from James 5. The second breath, right after that, a second deep breath, the judge is standing at the door. A phrase from this passage. And then your third deep breath, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The three key ideas from what James is saying about the return of Christ. The Lord's coming is near. The judge is standing at the door. The Lord is coming, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So try that and watch and see how those three breath prayers, those three breath reminders, help you to refocus your energy and help you to be patient and even help you to be joyful within yourself and in your relationships with those around you. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that your wisdom is greater than our wisdom and that somehow uh, you have seen fit to give us this hope that you are coming soon, even though it seems like it's taking you a long time to come. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you and to live with anticipation as we get ready for your arrival. And as we anticipate the nearness of your kingdom growing within us even now, before you have come to complete it. 
Help us to remember you in our times of struggle, in our times of hardship, and to remember to breathe, and to remember to give thanks and to be joyful in the midst of all of these circumstances. Because we know that you are coming, that you are standing right at the door with judgment, and that you are full of compassion and mercy. We give you thanks for James's witness, for the witness of his brother, our Lord, and for the witness of all of those who have followed in his footsteps, even Jesus our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.